what does the church teach about celibacy? What does the church teach about sexual minorities who are still trying to hold on to their faith that they received from the church? This is an interview with Jonathan Hoyt. Jonathan is going to talk with us about what it's like to be a sexual minority within a conservative Christian religious body. He's a Lutheran. He plays organ. He is old school. He describes himself as a poster child for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, arguably one of the more conservative, not the most conservative, but one of the most conservative Lutheran bodies in the world, and how he, through reflecting on his own awareness, something we've been really interested Mm -hmm. in talking about, um, allowed him to stay in a space that wasn't easily set for him, right? There will be some people who listen to what he has to say from a religious background and say, no, you are describing your reality in an inappropriate way. And there will be some people in to say, the, and that would be like more of a conservative response to, to what you hear, uh, if, if we can use those words, if those mean anything. I, I, I suppose to, to, to say what I mean by liberal and conservative, conservative is, is more of a disposition. It's saying, I want to hang on to the things the way they've been. Mm-hmm. And liberal can mean just, I want to progress beyond it. Sometimes you should, sometimes you shouldn't. It depends <laughs> on what the issue is, right? right. Some, some tried and true ancient practices are really, really good for us, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes we should listen first to the ways that people have given us advice, you know, on maybe how we should fast or not fast or, you know, there's just wisdom from the past. Conservatives can be very helpful. Liberals can be very helpful. They kind of just give us these different perspectives. But I am saying that if you are from a certain kind of rigid world where you're trying to control everything, if that's what you mean by conservative, you might find that you don't agree with our guests. If you come from a very progressive place and maybe you yourself have found kind of liberation in um, identifying... A, a way of being in the world as an LGBT person in such a way that you are worried or resistant to people who want to be celibate, for instance. Mm-hmm. I can see why that is a real fear because I think what we've experienced in talking to a lot of LGBT students is a kind of bait and switch about what this conversation is. Right. Yeah, I mean, often, you know, they'll be told, oh, you know, especially if it's something that's coming from the church, like, come and we'll have, you know, we'll have a real discussion, you know, about mm. uh, others that, you know, have s- basically confronted, you know, that they're, how it is that they feel, what they, what they, what is, what is like their reality. But then they end up getting, sort of bait and switched into how somebody was fixed. Right. <laughs> so the say the the gay gentleman who now no longer is gay. He is converted. He is a successful miracle. He is straight now. So we're going to introduce you to there, that person so that you can see that, that this, that's what you should do. We're going to fix you <laughs> and make you like that him. This, this can happen. And that, 
and we aren't arguing with that that is maybe that's, that's no, somebody's story absolutely not you know that that's their story but that's not everybody's story the sadness of when somebody recognizes who they truly are and how they experience the world and they're starting to tune in to that intuition right yep. and they share that with others and and then they just get complete rejection because that part that part is just who who they are now what they choose to do about that that's also their business nobody else can tell them what to do with that yes and so that's all part of other people's uh, th- that's that's their life to live that's their decisions to make you know it's it's hard like you know i i couldn't imagine um you know like in, in jonathan's world it's, it's really hard to think that there is a a level of physical intimacy that he says that he will never pursue. I know that I felt like for me, like that would be really hard. Yeah, it felt griefy, griefy, <laughs> you know. But that's not my that's not yeah, my story. And, and it, it also and, and could feel wonderful and noble. I don't know. Yeah, you know? and that yeah. and Jonathan may not have that same feeling. So right. for me to put how I would feel, right, or that the way that I think life needs to be done or should be done onto somebody else, yeah, is that's torture to somebody else. Uh, and I and and it's not i think we just we need to listen we need to hear people's stories we need to hear what they say their truth is because that bottom line people that's truth that's just reality yeah it's not my truth in some relativistic way where i get to see no this is what, the real what you is, perceive is what you perceive this is the real thing now this how you interpret it maybe maybe you're deluded because mean of your public school education or maybe you're deluded because of your indoctrination by a church i don't know but your perceptions are your perceptions and you have to start there and so much of religion is trying to stop us from admitting what is true yeah (laughs) right and not being able to recognize what the whole game's about if you want to wake up you got to start with how you actually think and feel so we're not telling anybody what they should do with it yeah. We are hearing what people's truth is and to say, I see you yeah. and I love you. And we are not here to try to fix you. And so you, friend, you're seen, you're loved. We're not here to fix you. We're here to let you listen so that we can all grow and meet a delightful gentleman. Jonathan is uh, somebody I hope to stay in touch with. You know, it's really nice to be able to uh, to get to know him a little bit. And in all of this, friends, this is this is what we're what we're really talking about. Friends, old and new, real friends, are supportive of one another. We listen with compassion, and we're not always trying to be in other people's business, fixing them. We are so grateful to Jonathan to sit there with us and tell us, and knowing that. All of you listeners, too, are going to have a chance to see inside of where Jonathan's at. That's a terrifying feeling. Yes. I don't even like people seeing my tie (laughs) if it's not, like, properly tied, you know? Right. (laughs) Which I don't wear very often anymore. (laughs) I mean, think of how, you know, you think of how embarrassing it is uh, when when you're, you know, like, dating somebody or whatever, and you don't want to, like, necessarily tell everybody else, like, what you're, what you're thinking, right? Because you're, like, so worried about rejection, right? And 
that like that's an even when the world would even perhaps just like even accept that relationship what about it like when somebody's telling the truth of exactly how they're feeling whether it's you know their attraction to people or not whether they choose to do anything about it or not and when that has to become everybody else's public yeah. business that's nope. horrifying no nope. that's horrifying you're the agent of you and so again thank you jonathan for being so uh just sharing your, your story telling us exactly what is going on what is your reality and being vulnerable and authentic and in that there's a heroism that hopefully will allow you listener to be and us to build strength up so that we also can boldly very boldly have that same vulnerability yeah. that same courage that jonathan has well maybe so maybe we're ready either way you're here let's go Stand by to dive. Diving stations. Dive. Dive. Welcome, friends, to the Protect Your Noggin podcast. We offer lessons in outfoxing religious wolves. And sometimes we will address emotionally difficult subjects. So make sure you pay careful attention to our descriptions of each of the episodes. And then also have some resources handy, such as the Crisis Text Line. That's one of our favorites, which is 741-741. That's 741-741. Now, just take a deep breath, because we're not afraid to go deep. But don't worry because we'll also have some fun along the way. Our plan is to help us all resurface with insights and tools to help heal ourselves and our communities. So come along, because we got this. Three, zero, three. Well, we are so glad to have an opportunity to catch up and chat with Jonathan Hoyt, who is a cantor and an organist, right? I am. Well, it's cantor. You have to use the German pronunciation. Oh, oh. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and uh, you live in Pittsburgh, and you're a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod guy. And uh, I want to. I'll start there, and then you know, introduce yourself. Then after that, I mean, that's like that's your that's your business card. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm Jonathan, as he already said, um, poster boy of the Missouri Synod, born and baptized in Concordia, Missouri. How do you get better than that? Concordia, Missouri. <laughs> That's game over. You win. You don't. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you're, if you're playing the, uh, how, how, uh, you know, Pharisee of Pharisees can you get, right? I mean, you've, you, oh, yeah. <laughs> you're from it. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And you connected with Jeff through his book, Sexy, correct? Yes. So I bought his book a while ago. So I was one of the Virtue in the Wasteland. Ah, okay. For a while. You go back for a while. Oh, yeah. Um, so I got both yours and Dan's books from that. Mm -hmm. Started reading through your book, Sexy, thinking like, I this is a really well done book. I'm going to shoot him an email and see what happens. <laughs> you definitely <laughs> get the award. I was gonna say you get the you get the award for the most detailed questions. I mean, you you really uh, were taking notes and you got stuff I'm like, oh man, that's been a while. It's kind of like I'm feeling like I'm doing a grad thesis. But could, <laughs> I cut you off. I'm sorry. Go ahead. 
Oh yeah. Um, I tend to get very <laughs> detailed. Um, my brain is a little bit of a mess sometimes. Um, but yeah, reading through the book, it's like, I don't often read books where the author is still alive. So but I, I said in that, in, in that, what I, you know, one of the things, um, I was planning on doing was actually doing a, a, a couple, uh, books in a, in a row. And what I wanted to do was to reframe the conversation about sex and romance and marriage and the church and sexual ethics. First, starting with with something that was kind of a little bit more boilerplate in terms of the conversation, boy meets girl. Um, we're talking about divorce. Some of the some of the kind of maybe historically common conversations that that Christians have had, trying to figure out. You know, what, is, what does it mean for Jesus to say that he's against divorce? And why does Paul say, it's, you, know, it's, you know, maybe you shouldn't get married. Who knows what's going down um, in, in these apocalyptic times? I mean, there's all, there's all sorts of stuff there. But I uh, was eventually going to come up with a, a better title, hopefully. But my, my working title was Kinky. And it wasn't so much about kink. It was about all of the ways in which these, these basic templates become very... Um, very much more intricate and more nuanced or have to become more nuanced to comprehensively address all of the sorts of things that we normally leave out of that conversation, like simple singleness. Yeah. And I know that a lot of people wanted to, to hit that topic, um, definitely have started on conversations re related to LGBTQ um, identities and navigating that in the church and so forth. Um, I've kind of come to realize that it, you know, I, I may come back to that, but I'm now I'm now spending a lot more time in the history department. So I've kind of moved out of teaching the class that that started that. I used to always teach a Christians and ethics class, and now, you know, I'm all, all caught up in the Renaissance uh, and Reformation really most days. But that's really, you know, part of of why I say in the beginning, in the kind of the the front matter, I wanted people to contact me, and and people have and. Uh, specifically people who had stories that maybe didn't quite fit into that template. And that's, I think, is it fair to say that's, that's true for you? Of course, my, the whole reason I am interested in any book on sexual ethics um, is because that's a whole conversation that's very, very personal to me. Um, when I was in college, I was dating a girl for a year, um, almost two years. And by that time, I just had to admit to myself I'm gay. Mm. This hasn't moved beyond friendship on my end. Mm. And that started the whole process of like, wh what have I been thinking my life is going to look like? Yeah. Because mm -hmm. marriage and kids is not really on the table anymore. Um, and just thinking through just the logical, like, what does this mean? Okay. If I'm not married, that means I'm going to be, single i'm going to be celibate what does the church teach about celibacy what does the church teach about sexual minorities who are still trying to hold on to their faith that they received from the church and so that's how i started diving into all these books on sexual ethics and of course coming across your podcast you wrote a book on that of course i'm going to read it right right, um, right. yeah so i read start reading through your book and the way you approach things is very different from a lot of other sexual ethics books. A lot of books on sexual ethics just go through the do this, 
do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, so on and so forth. But your book more, it deals with the actual real life mm. situations where you can't really say do this or don't do this because those aren't the two boxes that you have right in front of you. Um, and because of that, I could draw a lot from your book, even though I wasn't the intended audience, really. In a, in a sense, I should should go back and say, you you were the intended audience, everybody's the intended audience, but yeah. being able to start with something that doesn't immediately cause people to get frustrated or or draw their, their battle lines. Going back to your to your experience when you're dating a gal, um, what was what was what was that like? What was your emotional state when you came to that realization? And how on earth were you able to do that? Like what what had to be in place for you to be able to have that vulnerability and honesty with yourself yeah um so okay so going into that relationship um so i knew i was attracted to guys since i was like seven um i just didn't associate the word gay with myself till i got to college because i was homeschooled mm. <laughs> i didn't know anybody mm. who's gay i never had no reason to associate that term with myself well you didn't even have um, a category for it really no wow mm just a non-entity until when um, i mean like i mean surely by the time you get to college unless we said college so the time i really started having those thoughts was junior year of college huh. um so end of freshman year so uh my friend lorna she and i both said that we liked each other and from my perspective at least there's a girl that I like better than all the other girls I know <laughs> when you're at a small conservative Christian college, I went to Grove city. Um, that's what you do. <laughs> that's really interesting. Like a couple, do. a couple weeks ago, we had a, uh, a gal from Grove city on there. I don't know if, <laughs> if you know her, Alyssa Sabo, have you have, have any chance to run into her? She's a comedian and actress out that in LA. Name doesn't sound familiar. Probably different, uh, you know, maybe and different she years. Wasn't she wasn't in the Lutheran circles, so that no. might have also been. But she went to Grove City. That's <laughs> yeah. really yeah. funny. This is now this is becoming like a Grove City uh, marathon. This is oh, fantastic. A new, a new Grove <laughs> City is the biggest small college. Yeah, yeah. you'll ever hear of. <laughs> yeah, and she was from she's from Pittsburgh as That's well. That's right. Anyway, keep yeah. going. This is okay. So yeah, you're there. Yeah. So we started dating. Um, it was a good relationship. Like we both learned a lot from it. Um, but just after almost a couple of years, like I said, I just had the revelation of she's still my friend. Right. I haven't moved on past that. Um, I'll preface all this with thing. Lorna is still my best friend. Mm. She's wonderful. She lives in Pittsburgh, <laughs> 20 minutes away from me. I see her all the time. That's great. Um, she has been the most supportive person through the whole, like through my whole gay existential crisis um so about two years into relationship have that thought pop in my head and then where that shifted into embracing celibacy i'm honestly not really sure other than the work of the holy spirit because the thought of celibacy just popped into my mind mm. like nobody i knew talked about celibacy it just wasn't a thing i have no idea how that even occurred to me mm. um but it did and so i went down this rabbit hole googling christians attracted to the same sex celibacy and then i 
come across all these other books by people in my similar situation, mm. uh, um, like Washed and Waiting by Wesley Hill, um, Single Gay Christian by Greg Cole's Gay and Catholic by Eve Tushnet. There's this whole gamut of literature out there by people in my same situation, and I just devoured <laughs> all of it. When you when you were reading that, and I don't know if, if you can maybe speak to the you know this other this other uh, question of who is who is in a position to to judge, and I'm not talking about judging other people's sexual lives. I mean, who's in a position to judge um, whether somebody is in a healthy state? Okay, now let me give you something that's uncomfortable, not maybe for you, but just it's uncomfortable for me and, and Stacy. We 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 will often get. Um, opportunities to preview or to review documentaries, often by Christians, um, often by conservative, arguably fundamentalist Christians, who um, start. They start out, and this is what a lot of our students have experienced when when they say that they 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 want to have a, a really robust but nuanced dialogue about these things, and they'll be invited to a documentary or a speaker, and it starts out sounding very much like a, a maybe not objective, right? But it's like a balanced conversation and it quickly moves into what seems to be pretty heavy handed propaganda. And the propaganda tends to be here is somebody who has prayed the gay away. Here is somebody who is, who has been healed of this sinful desire and you can to just, you know, trust in the spirit or whatever. Um, and then they will have testimonies. But this is where I feel uncomfortable. The part that I feel uncomfortable about is I can see in the faces of cisgendered heterosexual white theologians who are trying desperately not to sound bigoted, trying to justify, you know, the Bible up against social scientific research, biological research. Um, and they don't seem that they have a lot of peace. This is just my, I don't know, this intangible kind of sense where they, they're desperately, like their job, and I found myself in these kind, kinds of situations where my job is to try to mediate between God and the students. They don't like the problem of evil. They're worried about evolution and science or whatever it is. And I'm trying to say, hey, God, let the kids, you know, get away with a little bit of uh, exploration and kids don't give up on this God thing because because maybe it's not as simplistic as you thought. Maybe there's more to explore. Um, but there's also a way in which I don't see that, that the again, the cisgendered heterosexual dude trying to explain everything is always feeling comfortable. Just And there's a difference between that and when I'm hanging out with friends and we just feel comfortable, right? We're just talking. We're just like, this is what I think. And, you know, this is what I feel. And then there's this guarded kind of uncomfortable thing. All right. And then I see the success stories of people who, were gay and now they're not, or they had same sex attraction and now they're not, and now they're healed. And I see, a, I, I, I don't know, and maybe I'm just reading into it a deep level of pain and inauthenticity. That's just what I feel. I also see um, sometimes a, a strange for, for coming from a conservative Christian background. We've got friends who say, no, I'm going to be openly affirming and uh, embracing of my own queer identity or whatever. And now I, f I really do feel relaxed and genuine. And I will say that I feel at a deep in intuitive level, a great deal of comfort 
that we're having a real conversation. And that's hard for me cognitively if I'm in if I'm in conservative Christian land. I like it when I'm talking to somebody and I feel that there's a genuineness. And again, to set up the to set up the context, I'm saying that there's sometimes when I feel that there's on the on the fundamentalist side a desperate attempt to try to do right by the Bible and God and their faith, but they're just not feeling connected. And then people who just leave the church all of a sudden feeling kind of connected to their bodies, their their sec their sexual lives, their their childhood traumas unrelated to that. There's there's like this the floodgate opens for them, and it's not just like just because they get to date who they want to date, but it's like this moment when they feel um, like they've, they've really, they, they've kind of lashed onto something that makes sense for them. That's a very long setup to my question <laughs> for you. And which is this, <laughs> when you read this literature of people, Catholic, Protestant, whatever that have explored recognizing their own um, selves, like how, how they perceive the world, what they're attracted to, who they're attracted to, and have decided to be celibate. What's the what's the what's the tone? How how are people in that world feeling about life? Is there is it just like hey, I'm going to try really hard every day, kind of uh, you know, or is it or is there some kind of freedom and 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 even joy? Is what I'm wondering. Yeah, um, there's so much there I could go into, but the kind of books that I gravitate to. It's hard to put a name to the quality that they have. It's not that they're just emotional or it's not that they're just logical because they're both. They go deep into the tradition of Christianity. At the same time, they also acknowledge like, this is my experience of the world and the faith that I have and my own experience not that my experience trumps scripture or trumps my faith, but they both exist. Mm -hmm. And I have to do, I have to honor both. Um, so it's that very, it's walking on that knife's edge where you can fall into emotionalism on one side or just pure rationality on the other side and walking along that and admitting, I don't have my balance half the time. <laughs> I'm ready to fall over any second, mm -hmm. but Jesus is the only reason that I'm still here. And you keep, and you keep marching forward. Yeah. When, um, when I think of things that make me on, like I get, I get people that are angry, you know, we get emails that people are angry at us. Um, I have noticed sometimes also on Twitter where people identify as, as I want to get into the question of identity in a second, but like they identify as gay or lesbian, but celibate, um, that they also experience a great deal of, I would say something worse than pushback from what is known as the, you know, the, the official trademark LGBTQ community that you are a, that you are a traitor uh, that you are harmful to the cause. I understand there's the Christian side, which we'll get to in a second, but what about that? What about the idea that, that all of these authors you're reading and you yourself, by taking this kind of route in your life, sure, you can do whatever you want, but even just speaking, speaking about your, your approach to life is maybe dangerous to young people who will think that that's the only option they have and they'll be still stuck in these you know, kind of fundamentalist communities that are not loving enough and dangerous for them. What would you say to that? Yeah. Um, 
so I personally haven't run into that a whole lot. I mean, part of that is all my circles tend to be Christian, so I don't really run into a lot right. of hmm. secular LGBT folk. Um, well, you may but, you may get some you may get some now. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but thank you for well, being vulnerable yeah. and honest and sharing yeah. with us. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, um, but from some of the people I've talked to, that that is an aspect there. Um, that regardless of what side the criticism is coming from, in this case, uh, the LGBT plus community, the, we're kind of viewed as traitors because we're not whatever they call it. We're not living our full humanity, mm-hmm. whatever that means at the current moment. Um, we're not letting ourselves have a relationship whatever a relationship means at the current moment. Mm. Like a lot of people in my position, gay, celibate, kind of just feel ourselves being pulled in both directions mm-hmm. all the time. Like people on the left don't like us. People on the right don't like us. Um, and I'm not saying that to say that just because people don't like us, we're doing it right. That's not right. Right, right. <laughs> what I'm trying to say. Um, but that tension is still there. It's still painful. Mm. But just because it's painful doesn't mean it's the end of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, because I still have Jesus. I'm still baptized. I still have my faith. Um, I have the church to support my faith, even if it does so imperfectly. Um and you're so not alone, right? I I'm mean, you're not. not. You have a whole bunch, like you said, all these authors that you found that it feel they're in that same and your actual yeah. church boat. You and know? your best yeah. friend, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But and so many people I've met online too, like have become my some of my best friends because we have that shared experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but the kind of attitude that actually seems to keep me going um, is something from the Book of Job. Um, when Job replies to God, and it's it's a text that is recited in almost every funeral liturgy. It's the, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Mm-hmm. There's this acknowledgement that, yes, stuff sucks, and it really hurts sometimes, but my Redeemer lives. Like we're almost into Lent here. Mm-hmm. We're almost in that time. We're looking through the suffering to Easter, to the resurrection, to Jesus. And that's the only reason that I have any hope. Because I know that my Redeemer lives. You say that in more of a Lutheran way. I know that the one, the one like kind of Catholic uh tone that i detect in that is something that i have i have heard when i've either heard somebody speaking or or um writing on the subject is that in the modern world we have this sense that everything is going to be easy and pleasant and so that becomes our litmus test if you know the route that i'm supposed to take is going to be the easy route path of least resistance right yeah and sometimes that could make sense but in many cases it doesn't you know uh Famously, Aristotle said, when you're, when you're kind of stuck with a dilemma and you've got two routes that you can't quite figure out, it's like a 50-50, you should go with the route that's a little bit harder because you're probably self-deceived because you're going to want to go for the easy way in, in some sense. 
Um, but that that risk, that sacrifice, that sort of thing. Well, which is what you did with your relationship as well, right? I mean, two yeah. years is a long time. And I think mm-hmm. probably at the point where it's like, what's the future of that relationship, right? Yeah. And there are some people that would ignore, you know, what they know inside and just go along with it, you know, and, and then have, you know, get married, have kids. And um, so I really applaud you for be, you know, being able to admit that not only to yourself, but also to your friend, you know, um, what, what, what's her name again? Lorna. Lorna. Yeah. yeah. Lorna. Lorna, because I mean, she also deserves a relationship that it's going to be reciprocated in the same way. Right. Yeah. yeah. And where I was at, I didn't want to force myself into that relationship because I would be doing a disservice to her. Mm-hmm. Right. Because thinking about a relationship is not one person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're bringing another person along with you. Yeah. I think Stacy and I have come to this place where we'd say that one of the biggest lessons we've learned for our own selves and one we'd pass on is that we don't do ourselves any favors by not being honest with ourselves right. and others, right? Like that the problem of I've said this too probably too many times now. I spent all this time <laughs> trying to do the history understand the history of epistemology, like how we know what we know. And it's like increasingly evident to me that the problem isn't figuring out what the truth is. The problem is um being courageous enough to deal with it to face it and so that's a really good starting point you know to say um uh unlike some i think certainly i'm assuming you would agree some of the ways that christians have have handled um any of these topics is to is to encourage a kind of um hiding and that that never helped anybody. <laughs> well, and when you when you mentioned all those movies, the ones that are trying to sort of you know like talk about like whether something's fixed or whatever is, there's that tendency to think that maybe what I'm supposed to do is go back and hide this again because it's it is too hard, it is too painful, or you know whatever that might be. There's, I think that um, there's a, a worry that the truth went back into hiding, you know, and, yeah. and, and it may not be the case. I don't know. I, I it's not my story. You know, I don't, yeah. I don't I'm sure know. There's plenty of people who their orientations have changed. And if that's the path that God has for them, that's wonderful. Um, but for every person whose orientation changes, who gets held up as the example, mm-hmm. I can give you five to 10 other people who are still traumatized right. by going through ex gay therapy. Yeah. And we get a, a prosperity gospel of if you have enough faith, mm-hmm. you'll be straight. Because you said you were a poster, you were the poster child of of the LCMS, right? I'm sure yeah. you probably. I mean, <laughs> when you kind of came to this realization, I mean, did you did you pray for it to go away? For a while, yeah. Because um, I really wanted to have a family. Like, I wanted mm-hmm. to have kids. Um, but after a while, like when Paul says he prayed to God three times to remove this thorn in my flesh, but it's still here. You still have like, it. Yeah. I'm still gay. <laughs> and I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. Yeah. I, I was going to say, when I talked about the, pro- the Protestant t- side, I was saying, if I didn't fully tease it out, that in the Roman Catholic tradition, you have a, a better, I would argue, sometimes a better language for it, because Roman Catholics historically have had a long tradition of seeing that there's a there's a uh, there's a place for celibacy and it's in the priesthood. I mean, this is uh, straight or gay is has a very long history and roots, and many Protestants just 
even if they pretend like, you know, um, we pretend I'm Protestant, right? We pretend like um, we, we, we really, we really live by biblical standards. Very often we live by kind of American capitalist standards, by which I mean, and I, I think I bring this out in the book Sexy, which is um, that we, what we're really doing though, is we're still in implicitly judging our marriages based on capitalist and pleasure values, right? So you may, you may be supposed to, you know, you might have to say theoretically, theologically, I'm supposed to not get divorced, but really I'm judging my marriage based on how sexy my spouse is, um, how much pleasure I'm getting out of the sexual experience, how, how pretty they are, how handsome they are, how much money they make. There's still this kind of transactional nature um, to a marriage. And therefore, we can't really conceive of how you could have a happy marriage if some of those things would be off. Likewise, we really can't conceive of how you could have a perfectly satisfactory life unless you're completed by somebody else Yeah, in, like in a marriage. Lost- We've lost the idea of our sexual lives being primarily self-sacrificial. Like we approach marriage selfishly. And so we approach the lack of marriage mm-hmm. selfishly as well. Like m- most, oh, I don't want to say most, a lot of the conservative church seems to be stuck in that 1950s post-World War II American prosperity. Yeah. And Things have changed since then. We can't pretend that they haven't. Um, but we can act like they haven't. And we're still in that state of bliss. Like the war is just over. Mm-hmm. Economically, we're better than we've ever been. So let's all get married and have kids. <laughs> yeah. And that's and that's something that is is almost like that is the orthodoxy for you know, yeah, like 1950s America, whether, you know, you're supposed to go to church mainly so you can prove you're not a commie. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Then you get the family so you can keep the the thing going now. And it is interesting because in your classes, you know, sometimes, you know, he'll do a show of hands of, you know, who's interested in getting married or not, you know, and, and versus, um, and also, and even just having children. Right. And more and more, we're seeing people less interested in getting married and less interested in, um, having children often because I think just the times right now currently are yeah, a lot of the students are saying, you know? I just don't feel like this is a safe place to bring a family to the world. You know, I take us back to something that, that you had shared with me via email, a conversation that you had about identity, because really one of the most fascinating things I wanted you to tease out for our listeners is how you would, uh, describe yourself not as having same-sex attraction and what what's the politics of that phrase, but also saying that your identity isn't as a gay man. All right, but you're gay. So t- tease all that out <laughs> for us. That's that's the that's the real uh, that's the real key. All right, so I can talk about this all day. That's if a, you yeah, have a question. It. Just stop me. <laughs> all right. Yell at me. You roll. Um, okay, so the conversation that you were referring to. Um, so I'm in a Facebook group. Uh, it's a bunch of gay LGBT um, Christians who hold to a traditional sexual ethic. There was someone who posted in that group. He asked that I use his name. So Kevin H. Brown, the most wonderful little old gay man you will ever meet. Um, so I posted a conversation he had with somebody. Um, and this person was saying, like, you can't be a Christian and call yourself gay. So you can't be a Christian and identify as gay. 
His response was, well, I don't identify as gay. Well, how do you identify? I show them my passport. But what's your identity? Kevin H. Brown. But you're gay. Yeah, I'm gay. But you can't be gay and be a Christian. Why not? Because <laughs> your identity can't be gay. Your identity has to be a Christian. My identity is Kevin H. Brown. And so on and so forth. This, um, so that kind of sent me on a whole intellectual rabbit hole about identity because I see that argument brought up so much that I can't call myself gay because my identity is in Christ. Um, and there's kind of two sides to that. There's the identity in Christ part and there's the actual word gay. Um, so just on the word gay side, um, so the most common terms people use are either gay or same-sex attracted or experienced same-sex attractions, something along those lines. Um, preface this by saying there's no perfect term. Right. All the words we have have baggage. Um, and a lot of the baggage on the word gay is like people will think you're affirming of same-sex relationships. Frankly, I don't care whether people think I'm affirming one way or another. Um, but they usually offer same-sex attracted as a suitable alternative. But the phrase same-sex attracted was brought into power by the ex-gay movements, right. ex-gay conversion therapy. So that has all that baggage on the other side. And so many of my friends who've come out of conversion therapy embrace the term gay because they have so much trauma from same-sex attracted because they were told mm. you're not gay <laughs> you experience same-sex attractions um, and so for them it's a way to redeem their humanity to acknowledge that a specific term isn't just completely off the table just because somebody doesn't like it mm. um it allows them to speak their reality and, yeah. and use language that makes sense. So like this is an ongoing part of my experience. Um, and I, I resonate a lot with that, which is partly why I refer to myself as gay. I'm also lazy. I don't enunciate very well. Same sex attracted is a lot of syllables. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, but in the end, I don't really care whether someone uses gay or same-sex attracted to for themselves. They have that right to choose the term that is most suitable to them. Um, but I don't think that language should be policed by others in that way. Um, and then going back to the whole identity in Christ thing. So in all your biblical knowledge, where does the word identity come up in scripture? Oh, now you're doing the questions of me. <laughs> Identity. Um, I, can, I can think of places where people would point, you know, um, but I can't think of identity. Are you, is it a trick question? It's not in the Bible? It's not in the Bible. Okay. <laughs> the English word identity I was going through the lexicon. Never, never appears in the Bible. Mm. So where did this idea of identity in Christ come from? Um, so, okay. So I did some digging into that, the phrase identity in Christ really came 
along at the same time as sociology as a field kind hmm. of came into our cultural moment, which is like end of the 1800s, mostly developed in the 20th century. Um, I'll, I'll come back to that in a little bit. Um, but so I went to the root of identity, Latin idem, did now problem with Latin, the manuscripts of the New Testament and the Old Testament are neither in Latin, they're Hebrew or Greek. So I went to the Vulgate, the Latin translation of scripture, did a little word search for Edom, saw where it popped up. Um, I did a little bit in the Old Testament, but Hebrew confuses me to no end. <laughs> yeah, it's a, so I, it's a I didn't business. really touch that <laughs> very much. Um, so I found Edom, went back, saw what it was translated as. It's usually translated as the same as something. Mm-hmm. So yeah. like in... Um, First uh, Corinthians 12, Paul's talking about spiritual gifts. All spiritual gifts come from the same spirit, the same Lord, the same God, Edom, Edom, Edom. That's where our root of identity comes from. So somewhere along the lines, there was that idea of the sameness, like God is the same as who he is. Um, and if you go into philosophy and logic, you have the law of identity, X right. equals X, a rose is a rose is a rose. Mm-hmm. And if you're having a logical discussion, you have to maintain the law of identity. If you say a rose is one thing here, you can't say a rose is something else, something else. So that idea of the same as something is, I think does factor into our identity a little bit. Um, Okay, so then hop forward 2000 years, get to the 20th century. How does that actually play into the way we view identity today? there's all sorts of philosophers who have tried to talk about like what the self is. Um, and this is a very broad stroke, very shallow stroke on my end. Um, but it seems prior to the 19th, end of the 19th century, philosophers didn't really try to define the self. The self was just, the self, like I'm just me. Then you get Freud. I am the ego, the id, the superego, mm-hmm. kind of fragmenting what the self is, trying to categorize it a little bit more. Um, and then by the end of the 20th century, that goes on and on a little bit more. Um, then we get to uh, Paul Ricoeur, 20th century French philosopher. So his framework of identity is kind of what I adapted a little bit to how I view things now. So he has his Edom and Ipse identities. So two Latin words, that same Edom, um, not exactly the same connotations, the way he uses it as the way it seems to be used in scripture, but what the actual terms are, I don't think is terribly important. But his ideas that I kind of boiled down So again, this is my view at this point. I'm not going to pretend to understand 20th century philosophers. Right. Um, (laughs) Especially those continental guys. They they say some uh, weird things. Oh, yeah. The recur is good. Yeah. So kind of where I've come to is basically there's two questions. There's who am I and what am I? So the who am I is going back to the scripture. I am 
like literally I am that I am have God speaking to Moses through the burning bush. I am that I am. Mm -hmm. Um, So that sense of just being the same as what I am and the name, the name of God, our names factor into that very strongly. I've always believed that even if your parents have no idea why they picked your name, Mm -hmm. if we believe God is provident over everything, your name is important even if it seems like complete nonsense. Mm. Um, So in that sense, the who I am question of my identity is I am Jonathan Lee Hoyt. And my name is baptized into the name of Christ. My name is written in the book of life. That's who I am. Then you also have the what I am question. That's more the, the phenomenological, the experiential I'm a man, I'm white, I'm gay, I'm a martial artist, I'm a musician. Those are all answers to the what I am question. So that's kind of the framework I've developed to think about these things. Um, And so where I see the debates over identity and terminology coming up is a confusion of categories on both sides. Um, So right now we're in a postmodern culture. I mean, you could even say we're beyond postmodernism at this point. We are careening in some, I don't know what we're doing. We're going. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we will find out the earth is flat and we're just falling off the side. (laughs) Bring Um, it all the way back around. Yeah. But the whole gist of postmodernism was doing away with overarching meta narratives. So if anything claims to explain everything, it has to be wrong in a nutshell. The religion falls under that criticism. So we have to do away with religion, but religion and meta narratives all answer the question, who am I? Hmm. So Christianity answers that with my name, my name baptized into Christ, my name in the book of life. So if you get rid of the who am I answer, now I don't have proof for this, but I think we need to have that question answered. If we don't have that question answered, if we don't have ourselves rooted in something that's far bigger than we are, that forms a vacuum. And that vacuum is going to suck in the closest thing to it, which is, what am I? So in a postmodern world, we define ourselves by the what question. Um, So this is why all the talk about sexual minorities and racial minorities and identity politics is because we're trying to put those things in the core of our being Mm. in a place where they don't really belong (laughs) but we have nothing else to put there Mm. and so on the side of christianity christianity sees that and rightly objects to it but in so doing they just throw out the categories altogether and throw out the phenomena that people know darn well is what they're experiencing yeah 
and therefore it's just this one massive gaslighting because i think that's i think that's what i heard behind some of the concerns for people who had been in conversion therapy was you know like to be told that the only thing that any human being knows even even with all the so-called postmodern philosophers there's this idea of the incorrigibility of of a perception or an experience so if i in in philosophy it's incorrigible i would say it's incorrigible that i have a toothache experience i may or may not have a, a an actual cavity but i cannot deny that i'm feeling pain right now yeah it might be a demon that is gnawing on my jaw it could be bacteria that are creating you know this infection inflammation in, in the in the root but um but i can't deny that reality when you're telling a young person to deny the reality that is deeply traumatizing and i think that's why our our ears are attuned especially to that and also why i i i'm not nervous about talking frankly about all of these sorts of matters i'm nervous about doing it in a way that harms people by accident yeah. you know when we are worried about treading lightly it's not anything other than not wanting to tread on people and that leads me to this then question to follow up to that. What do you, what do you want to say to parents? What do you want to say to pastors as they talk to and in front of students that surely there are going to be some people in a similar situation to yours uh, or, or situations that are at least analogous and um, they're being harmed by words that are being said how can how can parents and pastors in even the most conservative Christian circles uh, wake up to the harm that they could be doing with the language that they use surrounding sexual identity, if, if we can use that, or, or orientation, if we can use that? Yeah. Um, well, first, just acknowledging that there's never going to be a perfect response. Like, you're always going to mess up and say the wrong thing in some way or another um but just take more time to listen mm. and try to actually understand i feel like so many people listen with the intent of finding a way to prove that they're right mm. like i'm listening for you to say something that i can go aha i knew that was there rather than mm. actually listening to what the other person's experience has been and again not placing that experience above scripture but acknowledging it is there and, and believing i think another another one i've heard before um so uh it was pastor casey saying that we like should believe what people are saying to us like when you're talking with a child like that and there's they're coming to you right believe and what so you're listening, but then also believe that that is, you know, what they're experiencing. Believe their testimony. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like take people at their word. Mm. Um, and also I would add as much as you can be aware of any leftover culture war mentality. Say more about that. I'm, I, I intuitively agree with you, but what do you mean? Yeah. So I feel like, no, this is again, in my experience in the Missouri Senate, so much of our energy has been spent fighting the culture wars that anything that doesn't come down clearly on one side or another is viewed as the opposition. Yeah. Um, and I mean, 
some people might not like what I'm about to say, but we've lost the culture war. <laughs> yeah. We should just acknowledge that and move on. Um, but a lot of people seem intent on staying in that almost fight or flight mode. Um, with, I mean, pastors can't flight, so it's just fight at mm. that point. And that's not healthy when you have a person in your office who's confiding in you. Yeah, yeah. The person, that, so it's like in my case, a student, a pastor or a parent, this is now an individual, not an abstraction that is part of this big, massive chess game. Yeah. And they're not a pawn in, in that business. And I think that's really, the, the, that's, I think, the thing that bro- breaks my heart sometimes even about, uh, at, you know, post-conversion success stories being trotted out and the pressure that that's got to put on somebody to say, now you're going to, you know, this is, this is now kind of your new identity is as a, as a, as a, a pony for the show that we got. Yeah. And I just, yeah, I bristle at that, but you're, you're saying here, I think something that's really important, not just on this topic, but for anything, for any, anything that a parent's dealing with or, or a pastor's dealing with, what about though in a very specific way? If, if, if you could speak to parents, they have a, they have a 13 year old son or daughter that comes to them and, and confides that they're not fitting what they think is supposed to be the heterosexual norm. What, yeah. what would you tell parents, Christian parents that really want to do right by their children? Um, well, first I would just say to parents in general, be thinking about these things before your kid comes out to you. <laughs> um, Cause there's a huge discrepancy. Um, so uh, Another friend of mine, Peter Volk, he started a ministry called Equip um, that just goes to churches and talks to churches about how we can help Christians steward their sexualities according to scripture, Um, specifically LGBT Christians. Um, But one of the statistics that he's put out is there's a huge discrepancy between when kids come to the realization that they're gay and when they actually come out. I don't remember the exact number. It's like three to six years or something. Yeah. But there's that many years of just dealing with this on their own before they actually tell somebody about it. Mm-hmm. So parents, even before your kids come out, have conversations with them talk about like whatever your attractions may be talk about how marriage is beautiful talk about how celibacy is beautiful and talk about a comprehensive sexual ethic regardless of what sex you find yourself attracted to Um, and so that they know that they're in a safe family yeah to be honest with themselves and their parents. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And then to the parents who, whose kids have already come out, it's incredibly difficult. I fully acknowledge that. Um, I, I know I threw my parents for a bit of a loop <laughs> for a while. Um, but just keep communication open. Um, and same thing as the pastors, try to listen. 
Um, I know it's incredibly hard to do that. Like if you feel like your kid is abandoning their faith or whatnot, but just be supportive of them. Like you don't have to be supportive in the sense of just say everything they do is okay, but be supportive in the sense that this is always home for you. Mm. And I'm not going to shut you out of my life just because I think you're on the wrong path. That is when you say it's hard, I don't know. Like I understand why it's difficult in some communities. I personally don't feel like it would be hard for my own children. Mm-hmm. That's and I, and I'm not bragging about it. That's just kind of, um, just how I experience it. But the, the reality is it has for many people been impossible pastors, um, Christian college professors, whatever, where there's all this other baggage, there's the community, there's, you know, this, this other stuff. And, and that, not, I'm sorry, I got a little frog in my throat, (laughs) but, and that advice like stands, I mean, for, I would say no matter what your child is going through, whatever path it is, like you said that, you know, you, you might feel like it's like they're straying or something. um, But keeping that open, keeping that communication there, uh, you know, otherwise if you, when you shut them out, then you're leaving them to even the wolves, right? I mean, like, where do they go? You know, Um, at least if that line of communication is open, then you can still be talking with them and making sure that they're, they are safe, you know? Um, I don't know uh, that they have somewhere to turn that they don't accident, you know, end up having to go down other difficult paths just because, you know, they can't now turn to you. When I was asking about the pastors and and the community, I think the, the thing that I, I feel horrible about is that I remember in, in growing up in churches, and in our case, it was non, non-Lutheran, which is non-denominational, but there, there was this kind of way in which you needed to make sure to demonstrate your own very serious heterosexuality. You needed to demonstrate cruelty towards um, especially gay male uh, kids, like even like youth pastors, whatever, like that was, that was one place that was constantly the go-to. That's the, that's the one acceptable place for humor. By the mm-hmm. time it was the eighties, you couldn't have racist humor. Maybe we did a little bit, you know, like in, in, I mean, that's certainly something that could exist, but I grew up in Southern California. That was not explicitly cool, but you could be explicitly um, uh, mocking you know, stereotypical mannerisms and behaviors, and then everybody has to be rolled out on the floor. And, and, and surely that will, t- you know, take a severe toll. But I wonder, without you know, having to badmouth any specific congregation, but I'm just curious, growing up in Pennsylvania, to what extent was that something that you heard and, and, and how did it, how, how did you receive it? In other words, was that a common thing where people, demonstrating their their machismo by kind of making fun of making fun of people honestly not really um good thing you didn't grow up in orange county (laughs) (laughs) um yeah so that kind of ties into what i was talking about earlier about just not having the category of gay to think of myself as right 
growing up. Um, and knowledge, I had a really easy time of it, mm. honestly. Like, I was never around any people who used gay slurs. Um, now, if I was, that probably would have given me the category of right. gay equals bad, therefore mm -hmm. I'm bad. So the fact that I didn't have that gave me time to emotionally mature before I thought about that with respect to myself. Um, so yeah, I really didn't come across that at all. I don't think. That's good. And I, yeah. I guess we'll have to take some time to figure out well, what on earth was wrong in our situation. I, I also <laughs> think that because that situation was an evangelical situation with a larger youth group setting and things like that. So I know that since we've been, a, you know, a part of the LCMS, a lot of times those, those groups, are smaller a lot of times you know when you're when you're in church you're you know you're sometimes you know going through confirmation in a lot of those formative years right and so you're there with the pastor and you're learning all of the basics there at the church when we were that's when we were like in the evangelical setting you know a more fun and games doing a lot more skits. games and yeah, yeah. and <laughs> you know kind of so i think that, that that could be a potential difference and also you were um homeschooled uh, yeah. versus yeah. you know any sort of yeah so growing up i so i really didn't interact with many lutherans mm -hmm. growing up because there was a total of two other kids <laughs> in my church when i was growing mm -hmm. up so yeah that's um, stacy's yeah. point yeah right <laughs> so most of my interactions were um probably mostly like baptist reformed presbyterian crowd like that was who i spent most of my time with um but in general like very conservative, but also very respectful. Yeah, mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, um, there weren't really jokes made about anybody. That's good. I think that maybe you know this is a hypothesis, but maybe one of the things that we see throughout history is that when there's a lot of change, when there's pressure on those those aspects of change, that that's when sometimes the rhetoric gets heated up in a way that's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe that being in Southern California with Hollywood and things being a lot more um, in the culture wars really in intensified in, in our case in the eighties and so forth that maybe that had something to do with it. But I want to ask this, um, when did you get into martial arts? <laughs> <laughs> so I started when I was 11, we had just moved houses around Philly. Um, so about six months after we moved, I'd kind of been pestering my parents. Um, so one of my cousins is a, probably 10 years older than me. Um, he's a third degree black belt in Taekwondo. And I thought he was the coolest thing since sliced bread. <laughs> so I was an 11 year old boy. That was the best reason I have for why I mm -hmm. started. Mm -hmm. So we just went Did to Did you get class. in Taekwondo too? Uh, Tonsudo. So what's that? I don't know what that is. Similar to Taekwondo in a lot of ways. It's a Korean style as well. Um, Tonsudo tends, so I explain it to Lutherans like this. Taekwondo is the LCA and the ALC and all the various church bodies that joined the, became the ELCA. Tonsudo is the Missouri standard that just kind of did their own thing. <laughs> <laughs> that makes a lot of sense to me. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm tracking. So all the martial arts associations in Korea, a lot of them um, basically unionized to form Taekwondo. Um, the Tonsudo people didn't really like that. Um, so they kept their art as its own thing. 
Um, so in general, Tonsudo tends to be less focused on competitions and the sporting sport side of it, and more focused on the actual art and the philosophy and the application. Hmm. The reason I ask in this context is that I've found that in every person's development and, and life, to be able to be in touch with their physical existence, their bodies, is really healing and helpful. And I'm just curious if you think that there's any way in which being a part of martial arts has helped you not lose your cool as you navigated this and even talking to your parents about it, oh, giving you a certain absolutely. kind of inner confidence. Yeah, totally. Um, like it was, Tonsudo was one of the only steady things I've had mm. <laughs> my entire life. Um, it's like other activities come and go and whatnot. But like when I was in college, I could always go back to my home studio mm. anytime. I could just show up. My family was all there. Um, my Tonsudo family. Um, but then when I was in seminary, particularly, so after college, I took a semester off. Um, moved out to Pittsburgh, went to a small Anglican seminary. Um, while I was there, going to the studio was kind of my sanctuary. Yeah. Because all the intellectual, all the heavy brain work that I was doing through the day, it's like, I need to do something with my body. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I would go there two, three, four times a week. Um, just work all the stress out. Um, it was phenomenal. I still go to the same studio. I'm one of the class instructors there now. Huh. Um, it's been such a wonderful experience. That is so cool because I think, you know, I mean, one of the things is um, an internal, you know, this problem sometimes with young people and, and all of us, internalized self-hatred when we're frustrated with ourselves and or whatever and um, not being able to listen to ourselves and, and to our, our bodies. That's really cool. But the, the other thing that you say that there's a, there's a kind of, you use the language of sanctuary and so forth. And one of the things I've noticed is sometimes when young people are, are even debating within themselves or having conversations with, with clergy or whatever, part of what I've noticed is that what it, it at least of the lived experience, it looks like is, if I leave the LGBT community and go into the church, it will be experienced as leaving a place of unconditional love and acceptance and moving into a place that's very transactional and very much about acceptance and, or, I mean, uh, and, and very much conditioned in terms of acceptance. You can, you know, and especially with, with respect to sexuality. So, so, that's a very hard thing to convince anybody to do. And I'm not sure that that even makes sense. Like that doesn't make sense if that's really what the, the that's what the, really the game's about. Right. So set aside the politics and the theological interpretation. There is a reality that in as for my, from what I see the martial arts world, the LGBT world, you have instant friends and support networks there that are sometimes unparalleled in other communities, your bowling club and, and the cattiness of, of, of uh, faculty or whatever, you know, th- there's all sorts of places where you have friends, but you got to watch yourself. I would say faculty often is that. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, whatever, and, and name your own industry or, or place. And what I really, what I really like is I think what I'm getting 
a big takeaway from what you're saying here for parents, for churches or whatever is we really do have to be that place. What, what you mm-hmm. described as a parent or a church is somewhere where you can be radically honest and we work through these things together and you're not f- forced immediately to be part of the culture war uh, as as you as you had mentioned, and I think we're too afraid to do that. Uh, to your point, because of all the baggage of the history of it, and people say, "Ah, oh, there's a slippery slope." You guys are just too wishy washy, and I think it's not wishy washy. I think it's a. You were kind of talking about like walking this line and the the kind of the constant attention that needs to be to be put into that. Yeah, I yeah absolutely. Um, and also just thought about. Um, what we were talking about, the martial arts community, that is one of the most accepting places I've ever been. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's not unconditional because to actually make progress there, I need to be committed to actually putting in hard work. Sure, <laughs> sure. Um, but martial arts is the only place that I haven't felt a need to come out mm-hmm. because... It doesn't matter. Mm, that's interesting. <laughs> I know it doesn't matter. Yeah. Which is why I don't feel a need to tell anybody. Right. Um, huh. And then with the church community, there's, I mean, <laughs> I thought before, there's so much connection between how the hierarchy of relationships in martial arts is and kind of the structure of the church. That's a whole other. <laughs> interesting conversation yeah interesting though um but the community of the church i think kind of like what you're kind of what you're implying is apologetic um i think it was actually it was one of the other 1517 podcasts um i think it was donovan riley who's talking about that the role of apologetics is not to prove god exists because you can't do that the role of apologetics is to break down the barriers that people have put up between themselves and God. Hmm. And so the church as a community breaks down the barrier of, oh, the church is just judgmental and full of bigots. Right. But what if our church is a place where people can actually be radically honest with each other and actually, encourage each other in the midst of their vulnerability and be comfortable being vulnerable and i know that's a tall order among midwestern lutherans sure has been to (laughs) be honest with each other Um, but i think that's what the church should be like if we take seriously that the church is the body of christ and i think that's more than just a metaphor that if we are members of the same body, if we possess the same body and we are the family of Christ, it's like hospitality, for example. Yes. If we are the family of Christ, then when I say my house is your house, I mean it. This is your house. So make yourself at home. I don't need to get you drinks and make sure you're taken care of. That's a hotel. That's not hospitality. <laughs> <laughs> hospitality is that vulnerability where you go into someone's house and you help yourself (laughs) and the community has that kind of vulnerability where it's like you 
this is the family you grew up with because you did grow up with them. Maybe not at the, in the same place at the same time, but they're still your family. And for people who have had bad family experiences, yeah. you're saying a good family, right? The kind of family where you, your family, because your family, you're, you're already there. And this, this goes back, loops back to the question about like identity. And I'll say this to, to you, Jonathan, I'll say this to anybody else who's listening. If you uh, think about what I think the core of the Christian teaching is and has been, uh, it's something that Stacy Stacy says to the students um, when we do st- what we call stretching with Jesus, because you know at LCMS College, I think that's probably like you know that's that's kind of the flow, but it's also authentic yeah. because we're not doing Hindu stuff, right? You yeah. know, but um, we're not like Christianizing Hindu stuff. We we mm-hmm. she does whatever you know she does her own thing, and, and there's contemplative prayer practices, but the. The context of it, Stacey, what are the three things that we're working with? Oh, yeah, that um, I basically, you know, when every, when the students are coming into that space, I let them know, like, you, this is a space of unconditional love. You know, this is a space where, you know, you're not, you don't need to judge yourself with your neighbor, you know, don't even just judge yourself, period, just un- pure unconditional love. And then also um, that you have intrinsic value that, you know, mm-hmm. that's. What you know, whatever you, whatever you come, whatever you're bringing, that there is value in you know in you, and you are valuable. Um, and yeah. then, and then you know the other pieces. You know, somehow we're, we'll we'll get through this. You know, I I don't know exactly what always that looks like, right? And he'd know yeah. that everything's gonna be okay, piece. <laughs> yeah, yeah. coming from the everything's gonna be okay, but we have found some people really frustrated with everything is gonna be okay because they're looking at a world where right now they see everything is not okay. Well, and, and, and in a lot of people's life's experience, they feel like it hasn't been okay. You know, and they don't want us to say everything's going to be okay. So we don't take action to make it better. Right. Mm-hmm. There's that piece too. So, you know, that, that's why I like, it's like, we got this, you know, that kind of thing, like, you know, we, you know, we got we'll this, get we're going to get Whatever through it, you know, um, but anyway, roads, that's, but then Stacy ends it. And this is where I really wanted to go. Where, how do you end it? Uh, so I say that um, <laughs> I'm not this sure is instead this of Namaste. If you've ever been I to a yoga thing, <laughs> you know, they say Namaste, which has a whole different. Well, I've yeah, been so- to martial arts versions of yoga, which they don't yeah. say all the yeah, <laughs> right all that stuff. So I end with that: you are the body of of Christ. You mm. are a holy priesthood. You are the presence of the kingdom of this kingdom and this kingdom will have no end and you also the tell of the kingdom in this present then this yeah and this kingdom will have no end and then i say go in peace um i, I say amen and then i say go in peace and that's how i end um, you skipped one thing you skipped that you're the temple of the holy spirit oh yeah sorry like i said i'm gonna mess this <laughs> no, up <laughs> yeah. I, I say it every week you do it finally. somehow yeah. anyway. no, you, you, we gotta get in the zone but this is this is the key though this is the key to to you and to everybody just listening as I'm, I'm trying to say that those words of Stacy are not just her words. These, this is the this is the true theology, and it's not an abstraction. Your actual body is the presence of the kingdom of God. It is not mm-hmm. the building. The buildings are beautiful. That's to keep you the rain the, off the head of yeah, the temple. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, yeah. <laughs> and and this is true for everyone in Christ. That is the theology, and this is not wishy-washiness this isn't to say we're tolerating sin this is the reality that scripture declares and there are some of our listeners who are atheists and buddhists and they're not gonna that's not their their flow but i will say that it is not like we're trying to impose something odd onto historic christian theology this is 
the thing that Jesus brings. That the mm-hmm. temple isn't that thing up there. The temple now is is something to do with you, this embodiment. And we have a great deal of difficulty sometimes yeah. with that embodiment. Well, you know, and the other thing too, for me, sorry, it takes me longer to like process stuff when I, you know, when, when it's coming. So me I think too. I'm, I'm always about like, you know, I'm thinking more, yeah. you know, about you know something we said, you know, several minutes ago. So but sorry, no, but one of the things that um, I did want to mention that the, the piece about when you're saying with martial arts. And that the particular um, direction this one is, is uh, does not. It's not about the competition, and I love that aspect of it because you know there is so much that when we are dealing with our bodies, then we become competitive, and you know rather than having a space mm-hmm. that we could be in our bodies, exercise our body, or do whatever, but that piece of competition is removed. Um, I I think that that also sort of helps to maybe set the stage. Like you said, it's not even a, you're not even thinking of coming out in that environment. Cause it's like, you're not, and you're probably, you know what I'm saying? I'm you're not just you, you're just you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you're not sitting there. I would imagine, I don't know for sure. And I, I mean, this is a question. I mean, I don't think that you would, are you sitting there comparing yourself to the other, um, you know, students in the, in the, the class or that are in the, in the instruction is, I mean, is that, often a thing or is it you know are you fighting are you challenging yourself against yourself i guess yeah um yeah like there's no point in using other people as a reference point because like we were talking about bodies everybody's body is different <laughs> my body Absolutely. can do things that other people's bodies can't right i'm also starting to get to that age where other people can do things that i can't <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, isn't that that one that one's like when i remembered you know oh i used to be able to do back bends and it's like oh no 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 i'm so far from that even oh, yeah. with my <laughs> yoga I, I used to be able to put my palms on the floor standing up mm. can't do that mm. anymore well that's no that's well that's that's helpful to know and i'm sorry for you because i never could and so now, like, <laughs> if i get there then maybe i can maybe i only get it for like a, i can i have this idea i'll finally be able to put my palms on the floor and then that'll be the only day i do it and then i'll go back <laughs> well, and as a yoga instructor myself and then for you i'm you know when you're instructing your students i mean it's very apparent how different people's bodies are and yeah. what they're capable of doing and, and it's not like there's like this, as long as you're not hurting yourself, <laughs> you know, there's not a wrong way to do it. It will look different. Yeah. And like acknowledging your own limits makes you a better teacher too. Right. Yeah. Because if you're just comparing yourself to other people, like I want to do that. So I'm going to push myself and make myself do that. Then I'm not acknowledging my own body's limits. <laughs> but if I acknowledge my body's limits, work with them, work through them. Then I have that experience that I can apply to someone else like, hey, you're having trouble with this. Try doing it this way. And I, and I guess what I'm saying is I kind of wish that spirit um, was more in our churches. Mm-hmm. You know, that coming, you know, like that is not a competition. And, and not that I don't... I don't know. There are sometimes with people, you know, about, you know, who's the better Christian or who knows the Bible more or, you know, there's so many different ways that this can present itself, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm sure that, people don't want to be in that mindset. Right. People don't want to compare themselves to other Christians, but it's just kind of human nature. Yeah. yeah. And yet, you know, when a teacher, when a professor can can be honest about things that are perplexing, I think that's a that's a good sign. We like that because it shows that then 
then we're really having a, a, a you're wrestling with it a, yeah, a, a genuine conversation with the student uh, as opposed to the professor who tries to pretend like they know everything that's always a bad mm-hmm. sign you know it's like a it's a dangerous sign but where can i go of the things you mentioned earlier you know resources for folks that just want to take a look at maybe something they hadn't even considered right we know we know the the hardline positions and we're going to be reminded about you know what abominations are and then there's the other uh, there's the other place that's like, hey, fly, fly free, birdie. Um, but what, what do you think, at least in your experience, have been healthy resources, books, websites, films, or whatever? You found helpful. Um, so there's a blog that I was following for a while, spiritualfriendship.org, um, kind of taking a spin on St. Aylred's treatise, Spiritual Friendship. Um, but it's a blog that, all the authors are LGBT, but hold to a traditional sexual ethic. Um, so there's all these articles on different ways of living that out. Like talks about celibacy, talks about loneliness, mm-hmm. um, about physical touch. Um, Cause if you're not married, like we as humans need healthy, affectionate physical touch. Right. Um, but so many articles on there. Um, and then kind of a group that came out of that, um, it's called Revoice. They have a conference every year. Um, last year they had to do a virtual conference as everybody else did. Um, but same thing. It's a conference to encourage people committed to a traditional sexual ethic who find themselves under the LGBT plus umbrella, like gay, same-sex attracted, like whatever letter of the acronym. Um, so that's, uh, I believe the website is revoice.us. I'm not entirely sure about that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for yeah, thank joining you. us and, and having this conversation with us. Like you said, you know, we have to, you know, it's like by listening, we learn so much and I yeah. really appreciate you just, you know, being real with us and yeah. And, and having such a joy. <laughs> Good. You keep making your music. You keep being a blessing to everybody and uh, keep being the, uh, the temple of the Holy Spirit, my man. Good to chat with you. To you and to everybody, peace upon peace. so much friends for joining us for this episode of the protect your noggin podcast you want to join in on the conversation we'd love to respond to your questions or comments on a future show you can record a message by going to protectyournoggin.org and clicking on the blue voice message button and don't worry about getting it perfect since you'll have five minutes and a chance to preview your message before sending you can also send an email if you're not comfortable with leaving a voice message Please also follow us on Twitter at the PYNP and rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said that wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? That's because you found this letter low too much.